Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. So Sarah, we've come to that belt tightening time of the year that so many people have been worrying about and I'm not talking about preparing to go on a diet to compensate for the body weight in Easter eggs we're all about to eat. It's the time of the year we see all sorts of price rises. Yes, last week was bleak Friday when we saw hikes in everything from council tax to water bills. But while it's always pretty nasty, it was really horribly painful this year because of the sheer size of that hike in energy bills. Yes, it brings up plenty of questions about how much of a squeeze we face, how we'll cope and how we should adapt our savings and investing strategies when faced with this onslaught of higher prices. And of course, all this comes at the start of a new tax year when tax hikes kick in as well. So we'll be looking more closely at this today in an episode entitled Bills, Bills, Bills. To set the scene, we're going to chat to Mike Brewer, Chief Economist at Resolution Foundation, to get his take on the tax changes in the budget and what it'll mean for disposable income. Hi there, Mike. Great to have you on the programme. Hi there. It's good to be here. Then we'll also chat to Sophie Lund-Yates, our Senior Equity Analyst at HL, who's been looking at some of the shares to watch for your stocks and shares ISA in the new tax year, particularly in a high inflation environment. And we'll hear from our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, Emma Wall, who's taken a pick of the funds to bear in mind, given the environment of rising prices and the uncertainty arising not just from the devastating events in Ukraine, but also the ongoing pressures of COVID on the world economy. And Susanna has been building another quiz for me. This time, it's all about some of the weirder taxes we've seen through the years. And I have to say, I'm less secure in my tax history knowledge than last week when it was all about chocolate and cake. Oh, you never know. Uh, But you will be pleased as well to know I have managed to squeeze a question about chocolate in there too. But first, let's assess where we are with inflation. It's already at a 30-year high, topping expectations for the latest reading for February at 6.2%. But that was a bit like taking the temperature of a hot bath before chucking in more kettles of boiling water as price pressures have been mounting particularly since the outbreak of war in Ukraine with the price of oil surging and other commodity prices rocketing and we've had to get to grips with the fact that inflation is set to go up significantly higher later this year with a bit of a shock forecast coming out of the spring statement that inflation will rise as high as 8.7 percent in the autumn and that came from the independent body the Office for Budget Responsibility. Yes, and right now we're not just facing these ongoing price hikes of things like food and clothes, but we're also seeing annual bumps that tend to come in April, including council tax and water bills and the dreaded energy cap hike. Although it's worth noting we've been spared a couple of increases that we usually get around this time of year, which is the licence fee and the prescription charges. Unfortunately, we also have this rise in dividend tax of 1.25 percentage points and, of course, that national insurance hike of 1.25 percentage points as well. Although the spring statement altered that picture ever so slightly on national insurance and Mike Brewer will be taking us through more of that later. Now, the worry is that the income squeeze is set to get worse and the only way is up across so many sectors from clothing to homeware and household goods. We're being warned that the price of a pint is set to rise by Christmas. Thank you very much. As the cost of barley has soared due to the crisis in Ukraine. Although the Bank of England has said the path of interest rate rises isn't set in stone because of the uncertainty thrown up by the Ukraine crisis, the expectation is that fresh hikes are on the cards this year particularly in the light of the Federal Reserve's more aggressive stance with the US Central Bank setting out a possible seven rate hikes this year. 
So many consumers, especially middle and lower income earners, are going to face some very stark choices. They face having to pay more for essential items, which they spend a higher proportion of their budget on compared to higher earners. And that could hit firms really reliant on our disposable incomes. The latest retail sales figures show that in February, the quantity of purchases dipped by 0.3%, although that was partly to do with the pretty foul weather we had to deal with in the UK, of course. But there are worries surging inflation was already affecting confidence among shoppers. Yes, and if you look at card spending in March, so while overall card spending was around the same level as the previous week and around the same as the pre-pandemic level, how it breaks down is really interesting. So the amount we spend on staples is up almost a tenth since before the pandemic, which reflects how much price rises mean we're having to spend. And at the same time, the spend on things that are classed as delayable is down almost a fifth compared to before the start of the pandemic. So it looks distinctly like we're having to spend more on the essentials, so we're putting off other discretionary spending. And this is going to have a knock-on effect on the companies relying on that spending and, as a result, on investors too. And all of this may have been exacerbated by announcements in the spring statement. So let's bring in Mike Brewer. He's the Chief Economist at Resolution Foundation and has been looking at the cost of living squeeze and what it's going to mean for the resilience of our finances and our ability to save and invest. Hi there, Mike. Hi again. What did you make overall of the spring statement? There there was a bit of tax tinkering, wasn't there? But what's your assessment of just how it will impact the cost of living crisis? To be honest, uh, Suzanne, we were a little bit disappointed in the end. Of course, if we take a step back, the the idea behind these spring statements is that they are not supposed to be big policy-making events. The Chancellor decided he wasn't going to do a full budget and and all that should have happened is we just get an update on the economic uh, situation then he sits down again. But of course the economic situation um, is is not a very good one at the moment and and as you say it's got materially worse for cost of living issues after the war in Ukraine started. He was under pressure to do something about the cost of living but I think we can also see he's under political pressure to do something uh, about his, his own support, his own standing in the Conservative Party and his own reputation as a tax cutter. In terms of the sort of exact impact it's going to have on people, are you concerned about the number of people who are likely to cross over into poverty? Yeah, so if we look at what he actually announced in the spring statement, so we've got the, a rise in the national insurance threshold, the 5p cut in, in fuel duty, um, and a, a little bit more support for local authorities to help with some discretionary payments for particularly deprived households. Overall, that is a package which is mostly going to the top half the income distribution and, and not towards the bottom half the income distribution, which is where where the cost pressures will be felt most acutely in the year ahead. And as a result, we did the number crunching and we we think that over a million people, 1.3 million more people will fall into a measure of poverty in the financial year ahead, which is an absolutely extraordinary uh, figure, completely unprecedented uh, and a far greater sort of hit to incomes than we've ever seen even in recessions in the UK. And I think that's what's so unusual about the current economic situation is that household incomes are taking a hammering in real terms. They're not keeping up with inflation. But on paper, at least, the economy is still growing. You mentioned the rise of the national insurance. I mean, that presumably is going to have another big hit to people's disposable income. 
The national insurance rate has gone up uh, by one and a quarter percentage points uh, at the start of this tax year. That was announced last September and, and the Chancellor's attempt to repair some of the public finance damage done by the pandemic. And he said the resources will go towards the health service and social care. That's not going to help real incomes, household disposable incomes at all. But then, of course, in the spring statement, uh, what he announced was that rise of the national insurance threshold. So you won't start paying national insurance contributions at all until about £12,500. And so that's, that's a cut in national insurance payments. So we've got two things going on in the in, in the tax year ahead. We've got the rise in the rate, which uh, means you're paying more national insurance, but you're paying it on less of your earnings. So overall, Mike, what would you have liked the Chancellor to do then? There are two things I would have liked him to do. The, the first one is just to give us a hint about what he might do in the autumn. You mentioned that the Office of Budget Responsibility were suggesting that inflation might peak just below 9% in the autumn. And that comes from them thinking about what will happen to the energy price cap again in October. Now, we've just had a really big rise in the energy price cap in April, and these things happen twice a year. And on current forecasts, the energy price cap is set to go up again uh, in October. The Office of Budget Responsibility made their assessment in, in early March when the kind of price rises after the Ukraine conflict were particularly high. So I think they've got quite a pessimistic assumption about how much energy prices will go up in October. But even the assessments in the last week suggest the energy price cap could hit £2,600 in October. Um, so what I would have liked to have seen, first thing, is the Chancellor not maybe not saying what he wants to do right now, but at least saying what his approach might be, at least acknowledging that his response to April's energy price rise is not the last we've heard on this. He didn't do that. The second thing that we really wanted him to do was to think about benefits and the state pension. Now, the idea behind benefit policy and state pension policy is that they stay the same in real terms. They, they go up in line with inflation. That is current government policy. The problem with uh, what's happening to benefits and the state pension right now is that they've gone up in April, but they've gone up by a measure of inflation that was taken several months ago, back in September. In September, inflation was just 3.1%. Right now, as you said, it's over 6%. And, and for the year, the year as a whole, it's going to be about, about 8%. So the idea here is that benefits should keep up with inflation, but they're not going to next year. They're going to fall back with a real terms cut of about 4 or 5%. We're banding around numbers here, but if you're on a low income and your income goes down by 5%, that's a really, really big burden to bear. So what we were hoping that the Chancellor would do is just step in and essentially bring bring forward a rise that will happen anyway. It's very difficult, isn't it, to sort of cast ahead as to what exactly is going to be happening in the future. And so much is uncertain about, you know, what we're going to see in terms of inflation and whether we're going to get any help. Are there sort of specific things people can do to protect themselves against this sort of uncertainty? I think this is different situation from what we've been through in, in the pandemic. The hope was, the idea was, the reality has been, we have got back to normal again. The economy has broadly recovered, employment rates have broadly recovered. Many people will find that they're still doing the same job they were two years ago. Um, and and, and all, all the government was doing was providing huge amounts of support during the pandemic just to sort of prop us up to get us through the worst of it, to get us through the worst of lockdowns. But that analogy doesn't really work in a cost of living crisis. So what's going on now is that raw materials, commodities, energy, they're just more expensive than they used to be. And although some of this is driven by speculation because of the war in Ukraine, most of it is not. Most of it was there anyway before the war in Ukraine happened. And so we are going to become permanently poorer as a nation 
because we are an oil importer, not an oil exporter. And that means that for many people, the standard of living you're going to enjoy in the next couple of years will be lower than it used to be. So the first thing is to accept that. This isn't a temporary phenomenon that we just have to kind of tighten our belts for a bit and then we can kind of go back to the life we're used to. This is going to be a reduction in, in, in the standard of living. So I think people need to start sort of planning on that basis rather than this is a short, sharp shock that we can sort of cross our fingers and, and tighten our belts and hope that things are normal again by Christmas. It's interesting when you look at, for example, the rate at which we're eating into those lockdown savings, those people, of course, who were um, in the fortunate position to be able to build up those savings, in some ways it's, it's seen as, as good because it will, will sustain the economy, this pace of spending. But are you worried about that trend? I'm not particularly worried about that. If those people who were in a fortunate position to be able to make savings during the pandemic, and we know that those savings arose principally because people just weren't going out, weren't going on holiday, weren't spending the kind of money, discretionary spending they were before. If they aren't now using that windfall, if you like, to get themselves through trouble times, I think that's fine. I'm more worried about those people who didn't manage to make savings, didn't manage to build up a buffer during the pandemic, who are now also being hit by higher cost of living. I think there seems to be a big rise in debt, um, particularly I, I know we've seen a big surge in the credit card figures over one month. Do you have any concerns about what it's going to mean when people who are borrowing this money end up having to pay higher interest rates if we get um, higher rates as we go through the year? You raise a very good point. We have had very low interest rates in the UK for basically since the end of the financial crisis. And many people will have got used to bank loans being relatively affordable, to mortgage payments being relatively low. So yeah, there is there is an extra risk coming from higher interest rates. Although, goodness me, predicting where interest rates go right now is incredibly difficult, right? I mean, you, do, you definitely would not want to be in the Bank of England deciding whether what, what, what the country needs right now is higher interest rates to bear down on inflation. But but um, you know, when you know that's going to be very painful for people. Absolutely. OK, well, Mike, thank you so much for talking us through all of uh, the spring statement and your views on it. It's certainly going to be a very challenging time for people on all fronts. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Goodbye. So it's not an easy time to navigate through all of this for investors, but help is at hand. So I'd like to bring in our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lundiates, who's been looking at some of the companies to watch, particularly if you're planning to invest via your stocks and shares ISA in the new tax year. Hi there, Sophie. How are you? Hi, Susanna. Yes, not not too bad at all. As you say, not the easiest time to be trying to stock pick. Um, that's for sure. So yes, let's talk about Lloyds Bank. Why is it one to watch this time around? I think I've spoken about Lloyds before, so I'll try not to dwell on it too much. Um, Essentially, the main thing to remember is that it's a bread and butter bank. So all I mean by that is that it relies a lot more on traditional banking and lending than other banks who make a significant chunk of revenue from things like trading fees or investment banking commission. Um, And that means that the interest rate hikes that that you were talking about earlier are even better news for Lloyds than others. Um, So it also backs up the group's ability to pay a dividend and fund buybacks. So there's a prospective yield of about 4.8%, although please remember that that isn't guaranteed. Um, I should also mention that Lloyds has recently announced a strategy shift and will be spending about £4 billion over the next five years. And priorities for that spending include further digital investment, as well as expanding wealth services. Um, And that does help reduce the overall reliance on interest rates for the future, but it's, it's not going to move the dial just yet. One thing to keep in mind is Lloyd's has been buoyed by the really active housing market um, and increased mortgage lending. So that is likely to start slowing down, in my opinion, but it's not the end of the world. But it might be taking some heat out of the next financial results. 
Okay, so let's move on to the logistics sector, which is facing plenty of challenges right now, and Royal Mail is undergoing a strategy shift. So what should investors bear in mind with Royal Mail? So Royal Mail is really interesting, in my opinion, and the pandemic came along and massively accelerated the shift towards parcels, which essentially gave Royal Mail the kick it needed to accelerate change. Um, Total parcel volumes are now up 15% compared to pre-pandemic levels. But I would say that the most important progress is not in sales, but in costs and operating efficiency. In the first half, at least, um, Royal Mail was able to increase volumes without substantially increasing costs, which did absolute wonders for margins and boosted profitability. Nowhere is that better illustrated than in the progress the group has made on automation. So back in 2018-2019, just 12% of parcels were sorted automatically. Today, that's more like 50%, despite a huge uplift in parcel volumes, and the group has ambitions of hitting 70% in the not-too-distant future. Um, And automated parcel sorting is more cost effective, but also improves quality and provides the extra flex needed to deal with peaks and troughs in demand. You think about Christmas as a really busy period, for example. Um, There are further plans afoot with the next step in the transformation programme setting to reduce management positions by around 700, which is obviously a pretty big number. Um, The group has clashed heads with unions in the past over staff cuts, so it will be no small feat if they can reach an agreement on this within the agreed timeframes. But plus, once initial costs are out the way, that would be another about £40 million saving a year moving forwards. Um, It's ultimately the biggest risk, if you ask me. So I am excited by Royal Mail, and I believe it's a bit unloved when you look at the valuation. But there is a higher chance of ups and downs than than some of the steady eddies on this list. So in terms of healthcare, so that's really jumped to the fore during the pandemic, particularly when it comes to pharmaceuticals. But what are the long term prospects of companies in other areas? Absolutely. So I think when we think about healthcare, we need to look beyond just big pharma and for me this is where smith and nephew comes in so it's a medical technology company and it makes components for hip and knee replacements it has wound management and sports medicine and a lot of the stuff needed for elective surgeries if you think about it these non-emergency procedures are exactly what got halted in the pandemic meaning i think that smith and nephew has a great opportunity to stage a strong revenue recovery as hospitals play catch up on those non-emergency surgeries so again i have talked about smith and nephew before i believe Um, because it makes an appearance on our five shares to watch for 2022 list. So I won't bang on about it too much. But the one thing to keep in mind, (laughs) there's always something, is that global supply chain disruption could cause some medium term headwinds for the group. And we often hear about utilities offering some resilience in the face of inflation. Is there any company in particular on your watch list? So (laughs) utility companies aren't the most exciting, I will be honest. But in a world of soaring inflation, it makes sense to look for companies that offer non-negotiable items. And that just means that people need them, whether their household budgets are under pressure or not. And water is one such product. And in return for providing a reliable and affordable water supply to Northwest England, Ofwat, which is the regulator, allows company United Utilities to earn an acceptable financial return. So with prices set by the regulator and, and they're reviewed every five years, Utilities earnings have tended to be stable and predictable, which has supported a reliable dividend in turn. 
However, one thing I would flag is that United Utilities could find itself in a bit of a sticky situation if inflation remains elevated. And that is because its debt is index linked. Um, So that just means that it tracks inflation. So therefore, as you can probably imagine, it's become more expensive. um, And as a result, underlying net finance expenses for the year are expected to rise by around a massive £175 million. So together with increased expenditure on infrastructure, it's expected to increase their overall net debt levels. Now, at this point, that might sound really negative. Our indicators aren't flashing red. But if inflation isn't brought under control within what we'd say a reasonable time frame, it will become more problematic for the group. Now, as we mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, not all tech is created equal. Is that why you still have your eye on Microsoft? Uh, You caught me. I mean, its software is indispensable around the world. Um, Its software subscription model makes for recurring revenue and its highly profitable cloud business is going from strength to strength. Now, this lucrative position means Microsoft was able to return $10.9 billion to shareholders in the form of share repurchases and dividends in the second quarter alone. Now, of course, a more recent development is the impending acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Um, Now, the deal would allow Microsoft to beef up its existing gaming products, especially in the subscription-based Game Pass. So snatching up some of the world's most valuable intellectual property in this way is a refreshingly useful way to spend some of Microsoft's enormous cash hoard. Um, And luckily for Microsoft, Xbox revenues seem to be holding their own, which is kind of padding out the nest for Call of Duty to land, which is made by Activision. A big point here is that I view the current price to earnings ratio of around 30 as as really very undemanding. Um, The market's assessment of Microsoft could come under pressure, though, if tech stock sentiment were to become dramatically worse following the recent sell-offs we've seen. And again, we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, Microsoft's essential products does stop it from feeling the worst of this sentiment shift in my opinion but it's it's still a possibility thanks sophie it's it's good to hear there are some positive stories out there still despite all the challenges of the current environment of course i should add that nothing in this podcast is personal advice you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and yields are variable and not a reliable indicator of future income this is not advice or a recommendation to buy sell or hold any investment no view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. Investing in individual companies is higher risk compared to investing in funds as your investment is dependent on the fate of one company and any investment should be made as part of a diversified portfolio. Thanks for making that clear, Sarah. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Now, I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, of course, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Susanna. How are you? All good. So much to talk about, not least, of course, the recent stock market volatility. And we've seen investors snap up funds, haven't we, for broad exposure to these pretty fast moving markets reacting to all of these uh, recent events. So tell me, you've been delving into the funds to watch Which ones in particular should we be keeping a close eye on? Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that market uncertainty point because it has been a very challenging start to the year. Not just, of course, talking about the horrible events in Ukraine, but even before that, market volatility was being caused by the anticipation of inflation and and higher interest rates. And with all that ongoing uncertainty, this has the potential to cause continued market volatility 
in the short term. And so in this environment, we think a total return fund could be a good choice. So that's a fund that is tends to be more conservative. So it doesn't invest just in equities. They invest in equities or shares or bonds, commodities, currencies, often gold. And the managers have the flexibility to sort of move between those different investments, depending on what their outlook for the market is at that moment in time. And these funds... They could provide modest growth over the long term, but their main aim is actually to protect on the downside, to try and give you that capital preservation. Oh, of course, nothing is guaranteed. So we like Troy Trojan in this space. It has a solid long-term track record and it's run by an experienced fund manager in Sebastian Lyon. And he focuses on the shares of well-established US and UK companies that he thinks offer reliable earnings and good growth potential. And then the rest of the fund is in UK government bonds or gilts, US inflation-linked bonds, really important at the moment with inflation rising, and gold, which is that perceived safe haven, and cash. And that cash and gold does provide some ballast when economic and stock market conditions are tougher, such as now. And the fund also has exposure to a relatively small number of investments, which means each one can have a meaningful impact on performance, which can be a good thing. But of course, it does add risk. This tends to be a lower risk fund, however. And we do think it can form part of the foundation of a broad investment portfolio and bring some of that stability which is needed at the moment. Yeah, what many investors really are searching for right now. So what about a fund with an ESG focus? It can be like wading through alphabet soup for some investors when it comes to ESG. So what should they be looking out for? Well, our house view here at HL, as you well know, Susanna, is that investing with environmental, social and governance factors in mind is just really good risk management. And there is one house we think does this particularly well, and that's legal in general. And they have a range called LNG um, Future World. And this is um, a range of passive funds which integrate environmental, social and governance factors um, in the tilting of the investment portfolio. So this allows you to have a positive impact on the environment and society, but also invest in a way that sort of aligns to your morals. So uh, make sure that you don't have exposure to reputational damage, which can impact profits and drag down a company's share price. Responsible investment funds give the chance to make money in a way that's just simply in in line with your principles. So LNG Future World World ESG developed index is is one of the range that invests across developed stock markets whilst being mindful of ESG issues. So it tracks the performance of the sole active LNG ESG developed market index, which is basically around 1,300 companies based across the globe. So the majority of it is in US-based companies with the rest in Japan, the UK and Europe. So no exposure to emerging markets in this fund, should say, but it does give you that broad developed market diversification. Always remember that the price of company shares can fall as well as rise. So investments should be made for the long term. And this fund, because of that ESG integration, does have a bias towards more growthy areas such as technology, pharmaceuticals and financials. But you won't find any tobacco companies, pure coal producers, makers of controversial weapons or persistent violators of the UN Global Compact principles in this fund. Okay, good to know. So you talked there about certain sectors, but what about geographies? And I'm thinking now perhaps a fund with more of an Asia focus. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we talked there about the last fund, which gave you exposure to developed markets. This one gives you exposure to emerging markets, and in particular to Asia. So some Asian and emerging economies um, were heralded in 2020 for the way they handled the pandemic. So you had swift and strict lockdowns, which helped contain the virus, which allowed some countries to lift restrictions sooner. Things were a little different in 2021, where we saw developed countries adopting a strategy of kind of rolling out that vaccinations as as quickly as possible. And and China, Asia's largest economy, was held back by regular lockdowns. So it's fair to say there has been some uncertainty around China and Asia because of the pandemic and the sort of economic implications. That said, over the long term, we do think Asian markets have strong growth potential. You know, there are lots of tailwinds in this part of the, of the world. There's rapid industrialization, growing populations, and, you know, a desire to succeed, which has helped transform the countries in the region. And domestic consumption, you know, individuals buying more, saving more, is set to be a key driver of growth over the coming years, helped by a young and, and growing population and rising wealth. So, Despite the kind of short-term headwinds of the pandemic, Asia does look a compelling place to be over the long term. One of the funds that we like in this area is ASI, um, Asia Pacific Equity. So some of the markets that it invests in are still emerging, which come with higher risks. But it's run by a very well-developed team um, with one of the longest track records of investing in Asia that aim to find companies that can generate long-term growth, which often have been overlooked by others, and then they hold them for a long term. So companies in good financial health, um, run by trustworthy management teams, are the sort of companies that are favoured by the team. And it does have a bias towards businesses that rely on growing consumer wealth but it aims to have exposure to most sectors across Asia. So that's Asia, but I want to switch now to looking at income. So if you have an eye on income, which so many investors do right now, of course, what are you watching in terms of fund choices, Emma? Because interest rates are rising, aren't they, Susanna? But they're not rising high enough for those people to be able to live off the yield of cash. So we know year in, year out when it comes to ISAPICs, people are looking for income. And one of the funds that we like that pays um, a dividend is Artemis Global Income. Now, this can add a bit of diversification to a classic UK dividend portfolio. And it's run by a manager called Jakob de Tuschlek, who's featured on this podcast in the past, along with his co-manager, James Davidson. And they look for companies across the globe that they think can earn plenty of cash that can be used to to pay sustainable dividends. So they look beyond kind of the usual names that, that make up some other global income funds. And they have a bit of a contrarian view. And Tushlek is not afraid to invest in kind of out of favour companies um, at attractive share prices. And this is known as value investing, which has done better um, over the last year and a half than growth investing. And he invests in companies that he thinks can deliver over the long term. And he stayed true to his investment philosophy over the long term, which has done well over the last couple of years. And this fund could add diversification to an income portfolio and work well along other types of funds invested in other regions and in other styles. Now, Emma, we've got a quiz coming up, but I'm not sure you can stay for this one, can you? No, I would love to stay and pit myself against you two. I I listen every time to the podcast and it's, you know, it's fierce competition, but the markets unfortunately are calling. So another time. 
Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Investing in these funds isn't right for everyone, so you should only invest if the fund's objectives are aligned with yours and you specifically need this type of investment. You need to get to grips with the specific risks of a fund before you invest and make sure any new investment forms part of a diversified portfolio. You can find out more about these funds, their charges, risks and key information documents on our website. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. And Susanna has some taxing questions for me. If it's about the taxation of trusts, I'm going to need a calculator. Don't worry, Sarah, on this occasion, it isn't a mental arithmetic test. I've gone back in time to discover some weird facts from the archives, so just brush up your historical knowledge. Okay, we'll start back in 1698, when Russia's Peter the Great introduced a tax on a fashion choice he felt was old-fashioned in an effort to get people to look more like modern Europeans. So was it a tax on wigs, beards or pearls? <laughs> well, all of them just sound way too weird to be true. But pearls at least sounds like the kind of thing you might actually be able to tax. So I'm going to go for pearls. No, I'm sorry, believe it or not, it was beards. In fact, he apparently assembled his military leaders and diplomats and personally shaved them, which must have been pretty terrifying. Uh, Once you paid the tax, you were issued with a token which you could produce if anyone challenged you about your beards. I wonder if this could catch on, given how popular beards are right now. So next, in the Georgian era, there were quite a few new taxes dreamt up. So I'm going to give you a list of five. Four of them are real, and one I invented. So you have to find the red herring. So your choices are a window tax a brick tax, a clock tax, a wallpaper tax, and a rug tax. <laughs> Again, they just sound like you're making them up as you go along. Although I do know the window tax, it's, it's relatively well known because of all those houses of that era or around in that era that have those bricked up windows. So I'm just gonna have to guess from the others. Um, I'll go for the only one I can remember out of that list, the clock tax. No, <laughs> I'm gonna pull the rug from under your feet here because it was the rug tax. The clock tax, in fact, was introduced in 1797. It applied to pocket watches as well as clocks around the house and it was so massively unpopular that it only lasted nine months. But you are right about the window tax, inspiring people to brick their windows up. You can still see lots of evidence of that now if you you look around. And uh, they got round to some of those other taxes too. So the brick charge was per brick. So they started making bigger bricks and the wallpaper tax so people to put plain paper on the walls and then decorate those because plain paper was tax free. To be fair, I didn't really expect you to know all of it, but I just thought it was all fascinating. Okay, next, income taxes were first introduced to help pay for the Napoleonic Wars, but they were widely hated and they were abolished in 1816. Now, income tax was brought back in 1842 as a temporary measure and has remained in place ever since. But tell me, why do you think it was brought back? Was it to pay for the Crimean War, to replace import and export duties, or to pay for the building of the Natural History Museum? (laughs) I'd love it to be a museum tax, Um, but I did always think it was to pay for a war. Oh, now I don't know. Okay, I'm just gonna say to pay for the Crimean War. No, that didn't start until the 1850s and the museum wasn't built until much later. Income tax was part of the free trade movement and replaced duty on 700 different items. So there we go. Okay, so we'll come forward in time now, Sarah, to weird taxes right now around the world. There's a little known green tax in Denmark, which is designed to control a particular greenhouse gas. But 
is it attacks on the carbon dioxide from brewing beer, attacks on the methane from cow farts, or attacks on CO2 from bonfires? <laughs> I've no idea. They all sound so weird. But, you know, it would be wrong for me to go for anything other than cow farts. There should be some kind of uh, noise at this point uh, to say you got it right. Yes, apparently Denmark has the highest cow fart tax in the world. So there we are. If you haven't taken anything else from this podcast, please take that. Okay, finally, we're going back to the UK where VAT throws up some very weird and wonderful rules. One of the odd ones is that biscuits are taxed as a luxury, but cakes don't attract VAT because they're considered a staple, don't you know? So Jaffa cakes had been untaxed for decades. McVitie's claimed they were a cake, but HMIC took them to court in 1991 to argue that they were taxable biscuits. McVitie's won the court case proving they were cakes. But what was considered to be the turning point of the case? Do you remember, Sarah? Was it when they pointed out that they were known as Jaffa cakes rather than Jaffa biscuits? Or when they proved you couldn't successfully dunk it in a cup of tea without it disintegrating. Or when they argued that biscuits go soft over time and that Jaffa cakes go hard. <laughs> now, I actually know this one. I would love it to be the, uh, the tea test. But I've had a look through some of these baffling tax rules surrounding VAT. And it's the last one. It goes hard when it goes stale, which is mixed at a cake. There's loads of really weird anomalies um, that I discovered when I kind of looked into that. So, for example, did you know there's a tax on pets, but not on rabbits? Because rabbits are treated as food, which is really odd and definitely not something to tell your kids if you buy them a pet rabbit. It certainly isn't. Although, sadly, my pet rabbit did end up being a fox's food. So there we are. I hope that doesn't spoil your Easter. And Sarah, you did rally at the end there and you got two out of five. So I think you should take that. They were quite hard. I'm happy with that. Well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 4th of April 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. Unless otherwise stated, estimates, including prospective yields, are a consensus of analyst forecasts provided by Refinitiv. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Mike, Sophie and Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hudson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. Goodbye.